0: This is the Darren Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. I've been interviewing musicians, comedians, and all sorts of entertainers for almost 20 years. Joan Rivers, Flavor Flav, Paris Hilton, members of Guns N' Roses and the Eagles, and countless others. This show is about artists and why they do what they do. On this episode of the PaltroCast, I spoke with three people with very different career paths, Eddie Trunk, Sass Jordan, and Oba Babatunde. First up are highlights from my talk with Eddie Trunk. Beyond hosting the Access TV show TrunkFest, Eddie's the host of Trunk Nation on SiriusXM, the syndicated radio show Eddie Trunk Rocks, and the Eddie Trunk podcast from Podcast One. I first want to ask, Trunkfest, it is uh, coming back for a second season, yes?
1: Uh, yeah, we're shooting it uh, right now, actually. Uh, we've been sh- we have been shot about four or five episodes already. We've got to do about uh, six more. I'll be doing another one in L.A. next week. And uh, yeah, second season is being shot as we speak.
0: And will it be the same sort of format as the first season?
1: Uh, yeah, we'll be doing the same thing pretty much. Uh, it'll probably be a little bit of a wider net as far as some of the types of events that we cover. For instance, well, next week I'm going to cover the uh, NAM show, which is in Anaheim, which is a a big um, you know music vendors uh, retailers expo with music there as well. So it looks like it's getting a little it might get a little bit wider in terms of the types of things that we cover. I was in Vale, Colorado, uh, a few weeks ago, at a ski event that I covered. So, yeah, it's going to be this. It's definitely going to be the same concept, the same show, uh, pretty much the same thing. Maybe just a little bit more, even diverse um, sort of uh, events that that I go out to. Are you finding that the show is
0: taking you to a lot of places that you haven't been before?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there were a lot of people when I started doing the show and when they saw it uh, the first season. That I think there were a lot of people that just naturally expected the next thing that I was going to do TV-wise coming off of the success of that metal show to be something very much in that same format. And uh, I would have loved to have continued doing something like that, and I still may at some point. But the idea for this show, uh, Trunkfest, was 100% access TVs. It it was not my idea. They uh, approached me about it, asked me if it was something I'd be interested in doing, and what really appealed to me about it was exactly that is getting a little bit outside of my comfort zone, doing some different things. I've interviewed a million bands for decades and I still will. And I love the hell out of doing that, but I wanted to try to some different challenges and try to do some different things and show people I had a little bit more of a range than that. So the opportunity to do what is really essentially a travel show, has been has been great and yeah it's gotten me to music festivals that i would never normally go to because my preferences and my uh tastes are more hard rock but i've covered country festivals and uh, edm and pop and and all sorts of different sort of stuff so even if the music isn't my thing knowing what goes on at some of these things that i'd only heard about before jazz fest uh, voodoo fest things like that that i did in the first season it's just given me an opportunity to go there, experience it, see what it's like. And in a lot of cases, I like a lot of it. I mean, even if the music isn't my thing, it's it's cool to have that experience, see the culture, see the food, see what goes on at them. And there's more of them than ever in this country. So the timing to be doing this is great, and the opportunities have been great, and I've really, really enjoyed it. Have you been able to play cornhole since the Louisville episode? Uh, no, that's the you know, there's a lot of things that I've only done in this show and, and haven't done again since. And that was one of them. And I've always seen that played in parking lots at football games and stuff. But you know, it's funny when people watch the show, they'll see me say I've never done things like that. And they'll be shocked. Cause they'll be like, really you've, you've never done that. And, I, and honestly, no, I mean, I don't do it just for effect. Uh, it just, uh, depends upon where you're brought up and how you're brought up and what you're into and what you've done. But I never played that game. There was one episode in the first season where I ate lobster, and I said on camera, this is the first time I'm having lobster, and I got a lot of people saying to me, you got to be kidding me. Are you serious? And I was dead serious because I'm not a seafood fan, and lobster always kind of freaked me out. I never liked looking at it, and it always kind of freaked me out a little bit, so I never had lobster. I never had crawfish. So there's a lot of things that I'm doing in this show that I kind of have to do. I don't like heights, And I've done, uh, interviews on top of Ferris wheels and on ski lifts. So I kind of have to, and they want to put me in positions where I kind of have to get over it and try it. And in some cases I like it. And in some cases I walk away saying, no, I don't really want to do that again, but I'm, I'm at least in most cases, giving it, uh, giving it a shot.
0: Was public speaking ever one of your fears?
1: No, I've never had a problem at all with, uh, With with that, I I probably comes from my you know more than thirty five years in radio. Just I don't have any problem at all speaking in front of people or doing anything on a stage or anything like that. That thankfully has never been uh, an issue for me. And I think that just comes from coming with what I've done, you know, the things I've done for so long in in other parts of my career.
0: Not everybody who's been following you all these years realizes the success that you had in A and R. These days, do you do any A and R work?
1: Well, a little bit. That that was a re- that, you know that was a long time ago. That was like eighty six to ninety that I worked for a label and signed some bands and did that. Uh, some of that experience still comes into into play and helps me out. Uh, I do I do it, but not in a professional capacity. Meaning, I don't get paid. I don't take money from people. I don't work in the music industry in that way anymore. But I do sometimes have ideas uh, for for bands, and the one that comes to mind most immediately would be the band The Winery Dogs, which was my idea to put together. And what I mean by not having anything to do with it professionally, I have no financial interest in that band at all. I didn't make a penny on that. I have nothing to do with that from a money standpoint. But that was just a case where there were uh, three friends and there was a. They were all kind of looking for something to do, and it was originally going to be a different band with some different guys. And I suggested the the three guys that ended up making up that band coming together and doing it. So they gave me a credit in the record, which was really nice, and uh, and all that. But um, you just just being able to do stuff like that, where I can help out friends, and I've over the years I've got so many friends that are in bands, up and coming bands, and major bands that will every all the time call me up and say hey I'm looking for a gig or I'm trying to do this or hey what do you think of this label or what do you think of this producer or what what do you think of this song or should I, you know, and and I'll I'll be happy to just as a friend give them my two cents on it but it's it's not anything that I've done in a uh, professional capacity I there's so many young bands out there looking for direction right now looking for input and for a very for a very brief time on my site i offered a service where i reviewed demos and i i had to stop doing it just because i just didn't have the time to dedicate to it and there are just so many bands out there looking for some sort of help and i feel for all of them and i'd love to be able to have the time to listen to unsigned bands but i just simply don't right now in 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 my uh schedule but um you know i i i enjoyed doing that work when i did it and every once in a while I'll have an idea and I'll float it by some of these groups and I'll say, Hey, you should try this guy out, or you should write with this person or you should do this or do that and they, you know, either listen or don't listen, but they think enough of it to ask me for my thoughts.
0: Now moving ahead to these days, you know, one of the things that always goes viral in a way from your show is when you give your hot take on a band that's, you know, doing something questionable. But what I'm curious about is which bands that you think from the classic rock or the hard rock genre are doing it right these days?
1: Well, there's a lot of bands that are doing it right. I mean, there's up and coming bands that I like a lot. I love the Struts. I love Rival Sons. Those are two of my newer bands that I really, really love. I love the new Hailstorm record. I think you know, I think what Slash is doing right now is really impressive. I mean, this guy coming off of going back to Guns N' Roses, he he didn't have to do anything. And he was committed to his band, The Conspirators, and he was not going to leave that sit. And I've never seen a guy more driven. And he came back right off Guns N' Roses and made what I think is the best record he's made on his own. And with that killer band and went right back on the road with it. So he's been, I think the record he's made and the way he's gone about his business and the band he's put together and how great his shows are. He's got a great team around him. He's got a great band around him. I think it's, uh, I think that's really impressive to be that driven. I mean, to come off of three years of what's one of the, if not the biggest tour of all time financially and always, and still have the drive to want to get out there. And and work your own band and make a great record is I think really uh, really admirable. So you know that's something that comes to mind immediately. And then some of these younger bands and their work ethics and what they're building, I think is really very cool too. So there are a lot of a lot of um, bands that I think are doing great work. It's just the challenge in the music industry today is just being able to stand out. It's it's so oversaturated. Anybody can make a record. How do you, you know, how do you separate yourself from the pack? And in a lot of ways, it's just the answer. I think is just really making, having stellar material, having stellar songs. So, so, so often that's the last thing people point to bands that are trying to get going. Sometimes they'll ask me and they'll look and they'll say, we've got great singer. We've got a great guitar player. We've got a great look. We've got a great manager. We got this, whatever they have. But you look at the material. Are the songs great? And the answer is nine times out of ten, no. So I think that that's a, a big thing that that um, more people have to focus on as far as the up and comers. But I think there's a lot of established acts that are doing things uh, really well and and really impressive. And as far as bands who are kind of in their twilight years and whether you know on a on a farewell tour or toying with farewell or back and forth. To me, the band that set the blueprint for the best way to say goodbye was Rush. Uh, I don't think that anybody could have done it better than Rush, and if people saw the last tour they did, they'd know what I mean. They didn't play the farewell card. They didn't milk the fans. They didn't go and come back three times. Uh, They got themselves in the best condition they could be. They played better than they had played in years. Getty sang better than he sang in years. They did a three-hour show chronologically going through their whole career, and then they quietly went away. I, I don't think that there's a band that has done it more classy and more respectful to their fans, and uh, you know, didn't do the farewell thing, didn't try to sell everything on the stage, didn't try to fleece people on ticket costs. It was, uh, I thought, uh, you know, really, really classy way to say goodbye. Looking
0: ahead to the future. A lot of your friends have found successes with cruises and their own niche festivals. Is that something that you yourself see uh, the possibility
1: of doing at any time in the future? You mean in terms of uh, my own branded festival?
0: Yeah, would we see an Eddie Trunk branded festival or cruise at any point in the future?
1: Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, am, not, I, don't, I am not brave enough to take on the financial risk of booking bands there's a big misconception. I, my name is on a lot of shows, meaning you know, from club shows to festivals to uh, theater-level stuff to amphitheater stuff where I may even have a, a, a tag on there where they use my name and say I'm presenting it. And a lot of people misinterpret that, meaning, thinking that I'm actually putting that show on, and that's not the case. They're simply using my name because I'm helping them market it and it helps them market the show. And it's just an agreement that I have with them to do that. So I've, I've never presented a show or promoted a show only once did I ever do. And it was a charity event to that where I've actually, you know, went out and booked bands and put my money up to hope that they draw enough people to make my money back. I've, I've seen way too many promoters get, uh, get beat on, the the amount of people that show up and the uh, the ability to dr- some of these bands have to draw you got to really have deep pockets you have to really be able to be willing to take a a pretty big money hit and recover from it and I think really be in that game and I'm I'm not in that at all that being said there have been some people very recently actually have approached me about making a deal where I would basically have my own uh, festival or day or two event where I would my role would be to more pick all the bands and host it and have my name on it and they would do all the the work in terms of booking and putting up the money and taking the risk that sort of idea is possible and would appeal to me potentially so anything's possible um, as far as a cruise or something like that probably not because I'm I've been closely aligned with the monsters of rock cruise and I've hosted every one of those that happens, and I'll host this year's, which is next month. I love doing that, and they take great care of me, and it's run by a competent company that knows how to put those things on and manage them and deal with them. And for me, it's, it's a lot more comfortable to just go on there as the host and meet and greet with everybody and hang with the bands and do my job and then let all the stress of dealing with the bands and booking and paying everybody and dealing, putting out all the fires, you know, deal with people who are good at doing that sort of stuff. So the idea of doing anything like that, is it is it possible at some point if the right situation came up? Sure. Is it something I'm pursuing? Not really, no. I, I'm more happy just kind of being the guy that comes in and uh, adds a layer to, to whatever somebody else has has going. And I do a lot of that already. But there was the idea of a festival floated out to me very recently for to do in California, and I'm not sure where that all stands. But if something like that made a lot of sense and, uh, and was done right, it might be something I would jump into, but there's nothing imminent at this point.
0: Next up is my chat with Sass Jordan, who many call the Queen of Rock. Sass is the first female musician in Canada to have her own wine. That line is named Kick-Ass Sass and is currently available through Vineland Estates. Sass talked to me about wine, vocal technique, what's coming up for her and more. A lot of Americans first found out about you from you being on the Bodyguard soundtrack. In the long term, was that a good thing for your career or is that kind of a diversion from the kind of music you wanted to do?
2: Not really, I, I don't think it's, it's ever bad for somebody who's a public figure or who's doing something that requires them to be known by the general public, I don't think it's ever a bad thing. Unless, of course, you know, it's because you murdered somebody or something horrific, you know. But other than that, it's never a bad thing, especially not in this day and age. So, you know, social media driven. I mean, and also the landscape is just so incredibly packed that you have to find, you know, any way that you can stand out is not going to
0: hurt you. You know, so one of the really remarkable things about you is not only are you a great singer, but how long you've held together your voice and that you're still hitting all the notes and all that. Can you tell me a little bit about your regimen or how it is that you're able to still perform at a high level?
2: (laughs) Wow, nobody ever asks me that. That's cool. I like that question. Well, the thing is, first of all, it's enthusiasm. And enjoyment and the, the, the love of the craft. Like I, I love singing, but almost more than the actual singing, I love the connection that it affords me with people. You know, in a large group of people, you can really connect with everybody present simply by singing. It's like the wildest thing, it's very much to do with energy. And uh, the way I stay in shape um, vocally is. Many, many, many years ago in like the early 2000s, I did a an off-Broadway show uh, in New York called Janice, and it was four shows a week, and it was 19-plus Janice songs a night, and I had to do um, a speaking part as well. It was the scariest, most intense thing I've ever done in my entire life, and not really being a Janice-type singer, although lots of people say I am, but that's because they're just not really listening very carefully, but I had to figure out how the heck I was going to be able to, you know, survive like vocally because it was so demanding. And I ended up finding this vocal coach by the name of Don Lawrence, who is, and by the way, I had avoided vocal coaches like the plague up until this point in my career because the few that I had gone to when I was younger had said to me that if I continued to sing the way that I sing, I would not be able to sing by the time I was 30, which was clearly a load of S-H-I-T. But, you know, you have to be careful who you hang around because people say stuff and, you know, you might end up believing them in which case you'll create it for yourself. So Don Lawrence, Is the guy that he taught me this method of singing that has really saved my life. This is not to say that I don't ever lose my voice in this day and age now, but, you know, because it depends on like maybe you could get sick or you didn't get enough sleep. That's a big one. Or you just overdid it, you know, like screaming and yelling and laughing, which is something I tend to do. Talking is really hard on the voice. And as you can tell, I don't do much of that. (laughs) So so that's real. And he he was the guy that uh, he coached um, Mick Jagger and Bono and his most, I think his most well known um, client right now is Lady Gaga. And uh, yeah. And he was he saved my life, literally, in my opinion. So it's it's a regime, like it's really just a a, a vocal exercises that I do to well, stay in shape. And also I just love doing it. So I think that gives me the energy to do it.
0: I've actually heard Don's name, a uh, guy I used to work with named Tony Harnell from the band TNT. I know that he used Don Lawrence. How did you find out about him?
2: It was through this photographer, a friend of mine, Demo Safari. Who did a ton of work with the Rolling Stones and all those people? I think in the eighties, seventies, eighties, and even nineties. And so he knew about Don from Mick, from Mick Jagger. And he said, "Oh my God, you're going to New York? Well, get in touch with this guy." But this guy, but Don is um, very—he's very selective who he works with. He will not work with somebody if they don't eat. Either he won't work with somebody if they're not a professional. So, and uh, he especially was um, fond of, you know, Broadway people that were, you know, singing every night and and really needed him. So, so that's how I got in there. Yeah,
0: for sure. I'm surprised you didn't say something along the lines of, well, my wine kick ass, you know, sass, that's a big part (laughs) of my regimen to feeling good and singing well.
2: (laughs) Nah, my wine hasn't been around as long as i've been around
0: (laughs) sure so where did the idea for the wine come from because i believe you're the first female musician in canada to have their own line of wine
2: i certainly am and i think i'm the first female musician in north america or anywhere else i can think of to have their own line of wine to be honest with you can you think of anyone else i there's one person i can think of who has their own who's a female who's a quote-unquote celebrity who has their own line and that would be drew barrymore and that's it
0: female celebrities there's plenty candace cameron has hers but you're right female musician i can't think of any offhand
2: i don't even know who candace cameron is who is
0: that uh she's an actress who's on full house and i believe she's married to a hockey player uh with last name beret
2: oh I, I don't i've never i don't i have no idea who that is but the She has her own wine?
0: She has her own uh, wine.
2: Cool. I'll look it up. Candace Cameron.
0: Uh, So how did the idea for you having your own wine line come up? (laughs)
2: It fell into my head uh, one morning when I woke up. That's where I get my best ideas. Like, I don't know what it is. It's just when I wake up, the coolest ideas come into my head. And I thought to myself... Would it not be great? Because I love wine. I've always loved wine, you know? So wouldn't it be cool to actually, like, have my own wine, make my own wine? Not make my own wine from, like, you know, growing the grapes and all that crap, but have my, my name on my own personal blend, you know? And I had the name. I went, and I'm going to call it Kick-Ass Sass. That's what I'm going to call it, because it's not going to... The only difference between my wine and somebody else's wine is the attitude. (laughs) All wines are different. Of course they are. I mean, they're all different blends, and they all come from different terroirs, and they're all made by different winemakers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, all wines are different, but not to the general person on the street like myself. Wine is wine. I either like it or I don't like it. It's either too sour or too sweet or there's something amazing in the flavor that I love. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Like I am so not a wine connoisseur, wine snob person. I just know what I like. And so I'm making it for people like me, of which I think we are definitely in the majority. I think there's more of us <laughs> who don't really know anything in particular about wine except for what they like, which in the end, that's all that bloody matters anyway, isn't it? Unless you're, you know, unless you are... Somebody that is dealing in wine or some kind of wine merchant, that's different, right? But really, people like me, we just want something we like to drink. Uh, And so, and that was the the idea behind it. But it's got to be something I really like to drink if I'm going to put my name and my face on it. You know, it's got to be something I really think is terrific and that I'm happy to share with my friends and my family and my fans because that's really. That's who I'm making it for. I'm not making it for anybody. It's a sharing kind of thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah.
0: Besides promoting the wine, what does the rest of 2019 look like for you, professionally speaking?
2: Holy moly. I got a massive project that I'm working on that I'm super excited about. I got that going on, which obviously... Have to keep my mouth shut about it right now because you just it's best to do that. But I'm also working on a brand new record which I'm super excited about called Big Noise, and that should be ready to go. I think I'm praying, I hope, if we can get everybody's schedules together because I got a lot of people working on it that are you know like friends of mine in the business who've been like you know amazing musicians. Uh, but getting our schedule together and, and like to be able to record the stuff together, it's, it's a little tricky, but I'm hoping it's going to be out by the fall. That's the plan. And also I obviously am doing a ton of live stuff. You know, I'm going back to um, the Netherlands in May. I got a bunch of dates in Canada um, and then we're hopefully, hopefully going to be doing some, shows in the States as well, which would be very, very cool. Cause I haven't seen any of my U S fans in so long, you know?
0: Well, did you find that a lot of people who came out to the Janice show were actually fans of yours?
2: Gosh, that's such a long time ago, Darren. I can't even, I guess some of them were, I don't know. I really, I, yeah, some of them must've been, but I, that was really also very much about Janice Joplin. So it was more, mainly Janice Joplin fans, right? it was people who are Janice fanatics.
0: Um, your name came up when I recently interviewed Rudy Sarzo I was talking to him about the guess who kind of stuff and I'm curious if you and your husband ever sing together.
2: Oh my god, that's how I met him. He was in my band.
0: <laughs> well, I meant these days. Oh, um do you mean like in public? Well, some people when you know when they do a comparable thing to their spouse or their partner or their husband, wife, whatever it is, they kind of, when they're not working, want to do the exact opposite of that. And other people go, no, yeah. we work together and our career is also our hobby. So I'm curious which you're closer to.
2: Right. Well, I would say most of the time we're so busy doing all the other things that we're involved in when we're not playing music. And every now and then, though, of course, you know, Derek will pull out a guitar and we'll sing and we'll play, you know, it's, it's just don't do it all the time but we do do it once in a while for sure yeah because i mean we both love music you know
0: and then where does that put you in terms of karaoke you know some singers would never ever step near karaoke when they're known have to work and others would go nope i'm a singer and i like to sing
2: no thanks <laughs> See, i i love singing and i love doing it but i like i i like a live band I i don't like tracks
0: In closing, any last words for the kids?
2: (laughs) What kids? Oh my God. No, I have my advice is what my life motto is, which is enjoy, enjoy yourself, find stuff that you love, and do that. And I don't even mean like for a living per se, just spend a lot of time doing what you love. And that is the key to life. That's why I'm making a wine. That's why I sing. That's why I write songs. That's why I I do shows, because I bloody love it. That's why. And I encourage everybody else to do the same thing. And I love ya.
0: (laughs) Last and definitely not least are highlights from my chat with actor, singer, dancer, and philanthropist Oba Babatunde. If you look up Oba's IMDB page, you will most likely realize that you've seen him in dozens of roles. Beyond his on-screen and on-stage work, Oba, who was mentored early into his career by Sammy Davis Jr., is also active with Get Empowered, which provides outreach to thousands of kids. More info on that great cause can be found online at www.getempoweredall.com. Well, the first thing I want to ask you about was you sold out two shows at Dizzy's. Had those been the first shows that you did in a long time in front of a big crowd like that?
3: You know what? It was a very unique and and special time because I was returning to New York and I had not performed like that in a singular venue for that kind of audience in a long time. And so it was extremely special. It was also, as you may well not know, um, on December 6th, my birthday was the 4th. Sammy's birthday was the 8th. And so we had it land right between the two of our birthdays, so we celebrated both birthdays, and that was exceptional.
0: Absolutely, and having that kind of success, do you have other shows in the works at the moment?
3: I am so excited about what's going on. It seems that the response has been really amazing, and there's possibilities for the coming year... Uh, for more of the same kind of uh, opportunities.
0: I was uh, very intrigued to see that Ray Crew was your musical director for that show. Have you known Ray a long time? Ray
3: Chu and I have a long relationship. And so the fact that it was a coup to get each one of those exceptional musicians and Ray Chu being at the head, of course, everybody knows that Ray is the musical director for Dancing with the Stars now. So the fact that he was willing to come into New York because Dancing with the Stars films here in Los Angeles, that he was willing to come in and head the band was indeed an honor, a pleasure, and a special coup. But I got to tell you, each one of those guys, Brian Brake on drums, we worked together in Dream Girls. And he was the drummer that was part of the group that helped create the original Dream Girls cast. And then Earl McIntyre on trombone, These are legendary musicians. Earl McIntyre and I happen to know each other since we were children we went to band camp together. And then the great Tom Barney on bass, who's the original bass player and still plays the Lion King on Broadway. And then Patience Higgins, another legendary jazz figure who um, was right there in the very beginning stages also in Dreamgirls. He was my Reed section. And then there was You know, um, my friend, Cassell, who comes all the way from Cuba, and he came in. He works now with a number of major jazz orchestras in in, in New York, but he was there on set. He also works with me, uh, along with another group, with Get Empowered, an organization. So it was just a family affair, and it was just wonderful all the way around.
0: And you just mentioned Get Empowered, which is a big, big cause of yours. Can you tell me what's coming up for it? Oh, yes. And presently, as a matter of fact, starting tomorrow, mentoring high school students on their senior
3: thesis projects, you know, uh, connecting the arts with the social responsibility and diversity, inclusion topics and donating to to the different programs at the schools abroad. You know, um, Get Empowered is obviously near and dear to my heart. The organization really cares and they bring together artists from all around the world. And they make sure that they are connected to our youth as well as our seniors in terms of connecting social responsibility with the arts. So I'm so thrilled that uh, I'm getting a chance to continue to work with this organization, you know, led by the incredible Emmy Gittleman, who really, really puts her heart and soul into this and has built this from the very beginning. And so to be able to have that kind of connection and the artists that she brings together, I'm thrilled and honored to just be a part and among that organization's workings.
0: Now, it's amazing to me the scope of all the projects that you have going on at the same time, that the same person is able to play Dizzy's and do get empowered and beyond dear white people and all sorts of film and TV projects, all these things that don't seem connected to one another. Do you find that people, <laughs> when they see you at Disney's that they're unaware of this project, or they see you do get empowered and they don't realize that you're the guy from TV, that they haven't connected all the dots.
3: <laughs> That's a great question. You know, that coupled with the fact that I'm a horse whisperer and you know, um, a lot of people don't know that night function in, in the rodeo field, but you know what? In life, I have a saying: In life, as you do anything, is how you do everything. And so, I connect myself. This connects the dots because it has to do with connecting with humans on a on a level that has to do with hum- their human humanity, as as opposed to well, I'm an actor, or I'm a singer, or I'm a but 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 I am a citizen of the world and what i try to do is to include all of the things that i do to help uplift and make the planet a better place and that's really what my intention is and so whether it's through the shows like you mentioned dear white people for netflix or corporate for comedy central bold and the beautiful cbs swat cbs you know forever which is the amazon channel i just completed for the people a shonda rhimes show um, another CBS streaming show, or the Get Empowered, or Dizzy's, or the, the working on making sure that the, the uh, fire-torn areas that I'm running up there with my truck and my trailer and pulling horses out of danger, uh, it's all connected to the human spirit and the triumph of that. And that's my dedication, and the full measure of my devotion is given to that every day of my life.
0: Now, this question might seem like it's a joke, but it's not meant to be. I'm wondering where all this energy comes from, because it sounds like what you accomplish in a day is what a lot of people accomplish in a week.
3: <laughs> well, you know what? It, it's not a joke. It actually is a very good question and deserves a great answer. I dedicate myself to taking care of myself because that's another thing I deal with, health and wellness. So I, I you know, invest in my body. And in my, you know, in in the wellness of of my my, my body to be able to carry me through these experiences and be able to give it. And I also must say that I receive energy by giving energy. You know, it is called energy recall, energy return to the degree. My mother always said, you know, um, there are two things you cannot do with a closed hand and a closed heart. You cannot give, nor can you receive. So I open my hands. I open my heart. And I give, and thusly I receive.
0: Well, it's known that Sammy was a big mentor for you. Were there other people within the entertainment world? I would have to mention right off the top, Liza Minnelli, because Liza Minnelli opened the door to, for me. Uh, in
3: 1978, she brought me in to co-star with her on a world tour called Liza in Concert. And with that, I had an opportunity to meet many of the luminaries that existed in the world of entertainment that were considered to be at the pinnacle of their careers. And I learned from them, you know, um, what it was that, you know, great artists really strive to do. One of the things I identified is that the greats that I've worked with, they never really realized how great they were. And so they were always attempting to be better. They never sat back and rested on their laurels or their past experiences. People often say to me, oh, by you're always so busy, my goodness. Uh, How do you do it all? And and, and what's next? And I say, you know, I got to be honest with you, as excited as I am about all that I've done in the past, I'm even more excited about what I'm going to do in the future. I intend to try to continue to promote the legacy of that which has to do with decency and the best of the best.
0: When it comes to productivity, though, are you big on a calendar scheduling kind of model, or how do you usually approach things? Do you have a to-do list? Well, you know what? It's a really, another
3: great question. A to-do list. You know, I just opened myself up. I obviously have to have now a calendar, you know, and you know, it's it's interesting though, that those things seem to fall into place. One thing feeds the next. And so, you know, uh, yes, you know, along with my, my agents and representative, you know, representatives, we work hard to make sure that we're able to do as much as we're able to do, but without overtaxing me so that I can give the full measure of my devotion and not just hit at it, but really commit to it and do it to the, the full extent of, of, of my capabilities.
0: People don't realize how many things they've seen you in, but one of the things that really captivated me was your role as Barry Gordy. To do that role, did you actually meet with Barry, or what kind of research did that entail? That's a great, another wonderful question. Thank you so much. You know, um, I had
3: met Mr. Gordy many years before the project came about. I was doing, I, I originated at Kelly Roll Morton in... Um, Jelly's Last Jam here in Los Angeles. And Mr. Gordy came to see the production. And I was shocked because after the show, he asked to come backstage to meet me. And so I met him. Then I played a character on The Fresh Prince of Bel Air called Gordy Berry, which was patterned after Barry Gordy, along with Quincy Jones, which is when I met him. And then I had the opportunity to then portray Mr. Gordy in the, in the, in the movie The Temptations. And um, I think he has to approve who plays him. And so he gave me his approval. And we have a standing joke that whenever we run into one another on a red carpet or some event, he'll say to me, oh, my goodness, it's Barry Gordy. <laughs> and we have a good laugh about it, you know what I mean? But they're so interesting because many people who have heard about Barry Gordy, but have never had the opportunity to see him because of the movie. They think I am Barry Gordy. So when they saw me, they thought, well, that's we know that Smokey, we know that must be Barry. So I was able to give him hopefully the dignity that he is meritocracy.
0: So I also I loved the character that you portrayed on I'm dying up here, which almost you could say was like a sleazy Barry Gordy in a way. What kind of methodology was there to get into that character?
3: You know, the I'm Dying Up Here character is a, it was a very, very wonderful project. And, you know, I often tell people when I give a master class, as that's one of the other things that I tend to do, is that every character must see themselves, no matter what they are, they must see themselves as the hero. Because without realizing that, thinking that you're the hero, then you can't play a fully realized human being which is what I intend to do with every single character that I portray. And I let the audience decide whether they like, don't like, relate to, or don't relate to. But if I'm portraying it as a fully realized human being, as that person, whoever they are and whatever their intentions are in life, that is how they see themselves. You know, the whole thing about which I loved about... Um, I'm Dying Up Here and that character, is that, you know, you never knew whether he was really a good guy or a bad guy. His energy seemed to be, you know, somewhat sketchy. But when he began to talk about the historical aspect from which he was born and watching what happened to his father and how on Central Avenue, all of the businesses for the years were all black owned, And then what happened when the mob came in and started extorting money and pushing them out, and ultimately those businesses went down, you could identify that maybe he had a purpose for why he was doing what he was doing with his intention to try
0: to rekindle black-owned business. So moving ahead and looking ahead a little bit with Get Empowered is there any chance that you're going to write a book about the overall experience or even a book about your career at some point
3: Well you know what everybody is always asking me about writing a books about about my career they say oh by well, you've been involved in it you've been in this industry for uh professionally 48 years, that doesn't include the no-paying, low-paying jobs, and you've had the opportunity to be involved with so many people and, and, and such groundbreaking projects and individuals that you've worked with, when are you going to write that book? Well, I'm writing a book that's called He Said, She Said, which has to do with what he says is not often what she hears and vice versa. And this is in design because of my experience of understanding exactly just the way the species tend, you know, the, 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 the genders tend to, to hear and, and communicate with one another. So it's not so much about a tell-all or a, a, a book about my experiences with people because those things live and die in my heart and mind. You know, they're very special and it's, it makes for a good coffee table conversation when I might be sitting around with friends. <laughs> but I'd rather write a book that seems to continue to help the masses and the ability to relate to one another.
0: So it sounds like you're not just a horse whisperer, but a gender whisperer too.
3: <laughs> I've been accused of being such.
0: <laughs> right on. So uh, in closing, any last words for the kids?
3: Yes. I say to that youth, they cannot take from you what they did not give to you. Your gifts and your talents, and your abilities, and your capabilities, those are yours. And to the degree that you invest and give your energy to the full measure of your devotion to your dream, they not only can, they will manifest. They will come true. So believe, trust, work hard, stay dedicated, and I will see you the next time I look at you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz on the Pure Grain Audio Network. More information on the Paltrowcast can be found online at www.puregrainaudio.com. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.